Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. All right. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Clifford Robin. We're at uh, J. Christopher. It's June 10th, 2021. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, first question is why wine? Um, it kind of started as an accident, to be honest. Uh, I started a two-week job shadow at a CPA firm in, in Portland that specializes in vineyards and wineries of Oregon. And uh, that two weeks turned into uh, eight and a half years. Uh, the, the firm Irvin and Company, that's like I said, they specialize only in, in vineyards and wineries. I know they've since grown. Uh, I was, like I said, a two-week job shadow that turned into a full-on internship. Um, and then I really wanted to be in the FBI, so I was studying criminal justice. And uh, yeah, wine, wine just seemed really interesting. I fell into it. Uh, a couple of really great clients, you know, they had all the, the big names as clients, you know, ERAF, Silicon Blosser, um, I know I'm skipping over a, a billion of them, but there were about 200 clients, uh, both vineyard and winery, and uh, when the wine industry was much smaller, and uh, gosh, they sent me out to Lemelson when I was 20 to work a couple of days of harvest, and I mean, that facility was so big and beautiful, and just seeing all this effort during harvest, all the, the bodies that come together, you know, once a year to, to, to uh, bring in, you know, this one product. It's like the Super Bowl of the industry, you know. It's not like beer where you're constantly buying and, and producing. You get this one shot, and I just thought that that was a really great experience. So let's back up before wine. You mentioned both uh, FBI and accounting, a couple of different paths there. So tell me about uh, where'd you grow up and, and education and, and kind of the, the pre-wine path. So I, I grew up actually uh, originally from southeast Portland. Uh, then we moved to Westland Wilsonville. And uh, when I was in elementary school, um, I'm sixth generation Oregonian on one side, fifth generation on the other. So. Deep roots here in Oregon, which is a part of the reason I, I was super excited to work uh, in the wine industry as well. Um, yeah, just kind of this native Oregonian tree hugging, you know, hippie type. That uh, that's what I like about the wine industry. It's so ingrained in agriculture and, and what Oregon is. FBI, I I don't know. I didn't want to be a police officer, and I think given given. Uh, recent events, I made a wise choice not going that route. Um, FBI was just, there's more forensic. I got really into the FBI when, um, you know, Oregon City, the, the couple of girls that were, you know, murdered there. I just, I followed that case really intently and, and FBI wanting to make a difference and, and whatnot. Uh, it just became a really big interest in my, my teenage years. So what did you do after high school? I went to Portland State, uh, studied criminal justice and accounting, and uh, like I said, when, when I started at the, uh, uh, the internship at the accounting firm, just kind of took a hard left, and it was an easy path and an easy career decision to, to make. I really liked all the clients that we worked with, and, and the, the people I worked with at the firm were great, so made things very, very easy. and. Uh, I had a, an aunt who's, uh, you know, worked in the DA office, and she a few times alluded to how depressing it is to be involved in some of these cases where, with some of these creepies, creepy people. So uh, I'm a positive person. I, I think that that would have been a little bit depressing. I think I figured out early on. So tell me about your sort of first impression of, of Oregon wine. Your 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 job shadowing, interning, they sent out into Oregon wine. Tell me about first impressions. Uh, so w when I first started, um, of course I was not of age, so I never, never dabbled before I was 21, putting that out there for my daughters in case they see this. Um, 
I was I wasn't a huge red wine fan at the time. Um, you know, white wines were more interesting. Chardonnay, really big Chardonnay fan. Um, and you know, I got in, I got shown some Rieslings uh, when in my early twenties, and that really uh, kicked a passion for Riesling off for me. Um, I'd say probably in my early to mid twenties is when I really started to get interested in Pinot and kind of understand a little bit. Um, mostly, you know, just clients and whatnot that would give me bottles. So I figured we might as well open them up and give them a try. I just like the uh, white wines are kind of more preferred. But, mm -hmm. You know, the the having it refrigerated, it's a little cooler. So, how did you learn about? as you were getting into the wine industry and getting into wine, how did you educate yourself about wine, about different kinds of wines? Um, really by drinking. I mean, it's a participation sport. Um, no, I, I, you know, it, but sharing wine with friends, you know, getting together, um, you know, everyone's got something that they enjoy and that they want to show. I mean, like, you know, bringing up Forrest Shod, we get together and we, we, we try all sorts of wines, uh, play a little game called Stump the Chump, those kind of things, you know, blind tasting, so uh, people try and, and guess what they're doing. Um, you know, another blind game like Old World, New World, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but you know, you go through the progressions of Old World, New World, country, region, state, you know, wherever, varietal, vintage. Um, so, yeah, like I said, it's, it's more about trying a lot of wines and, and, you know, some of it is just sometimes you're interested in a country geographically or whatever, you might see what they're doing and, you know, try their wines. So you talk about the, the wines, I'm curious about the, about the people in the industry as you were getting to know them. What were your impressions of Oregon wine industry people? I thought it was really cool just um, how close-knit a community is. It, you know, everyone was so willing to share thoughts and work together um, to create ideas, solutions. You know, some of the, the organizations and groups that are, um, you know, here in the Valley. Willamette Valley Wineries Association, I think is great. I remember when it was Yamhill County Wineries Association. Um, but that was the most impressive thing to me was the cohesiveness of the, the community. So after you started at Irvine and Associates, uh, tell me about kind of the progression for you working in, working your way into the industry. Yeah, so um, it, was, it was interesting. Right around the time I started and, and they'd sent me off to Lemelson, I was kind of juggling working at Lemelson. I got to play in the cellar a little bit, but I also worked in their office. Um, doing various accounting projects. And then, um, yeah, I was kind of just uh, doing really basic stuff at in, in the accounting firm, whatever the, the grunt work was that no one else wanted to do. And then uh, I thought after two weeks I was going to be done. And my last day, they said, Are you going to come back next week? And I said, Sure, why not? So I came back and, and, uh, they kind of just put me in this little corner and then finally they, after a couple of months, they set me up with a real desk. Um, and I felt, I felt legit at that point. And then, um, yeah, we, they just kept piling more and more work. And I, you know, was, it was almost easier studying uh, accounting at Portland State to actually have the on-hands experience and then just show up for the exams. Because I, I was ahead of a lot of my classmates that way. Um, and then, gosh, I think one day they, one of the, the partners brought up that, you know, when, if I wanted to continue interning, and I'm like, well, you know, I graduate in like six months, and they're like, oh. So I, they pretty much immediately put me on full time at that point um, before graduation. So it was a little awkward kind of helping as they're bringing in new people manage people that were maybe 10 to 15 years older than me. Um, 
and had fully graduated, but uh, it was fun. You know, I got to work on a lot of audits, you know, a lot of the transactions that happened here uh, in the Valley with, with, you know, some of the big wineries that were purchased. You know, our neighbors right here, the uh, Jacob Hart, Rex Hill, A to Z transaction. Um, you know, I worked with on the Penrash transaction, uh, a little bit on the ERath with Chateau Saint Michel. So yeah, there, the, a lot of changes, and uh, just, you know, I learned a lot. But I think I was kind of outgrew juggling the mass massive client load, and it was much easier to to come and work directly for mm -hmm. one one entity. Before we get to that, I'm, I'm curious, we've heard, we've heard that wine accounting is especially complicated. I'm curious, from your experience, what is complicated about it and how did you kind of get hold of, of how, it was, how it was going to work? The, I, I don't know any different, so for me, <laughs> I'm like, uh, is it that hard? Um, yeah, there is definitely, like any industry, there's nuance to it, but I would say one of the biggest things is you know, the tracking of the costs and how do you do that? And some people want to make it overly complicated. You know, you've got your vineyard costs and then you've got everything going on in the cellar. And, you know, there's also ways to keep things very simple. And, you know, at Irvin, we had, we had everything from very detailed, you know, tracking of costs in the vineyard as well as in the cellar and other ways that it was very easy to, to keep it simple and materially it was still correct. Um, so yeah, I, like I said, I don't know, I don't know any other real accounting, real life experience. I, the one big uh, client that I worked on that was not in the industry, you know, as a computer speaker manufacturer, they were just basically buying from Asia and reselling. So it's pretty easy to track those costs. They are what they are. As you decided to to move into to kind of move out of that role and into this, tell me about the the transition for you. What, what were you looking for, and, and how did this come about? Well, so back in two thousand five, um, Ernie Lozen and and Jay Summers um, started collaborating just on uh, making some high end wines. We have this Apassionata label that still exists to today, and what that was was. There was no real partnership at that point. It was just Ernie and Jay going and finding the best barrels and doing, you know, 100 cases production and of a really nice high-end wine. And um, they also did this Two Worlds collaboration where Ernie sent some bulk Pinot from Germany um, from the Villa Wolf estate that he owns. Uh, and uh, they blended some German Pinot with some Oregon Pinot, and uh, you know, it's a great little value wine for you know, 15 to 18 bucks a bottle. I had to stop due to trademark issues, but we won't go into that. Um, but so they were doing that, and a couple years into it, they decided that they wanted to do something more. You know, Jay was making 2,500 to 3,000 cases out in West Lynn in a little barn, and so. Um, yeah, Ernie, you know, was making his money from the, his Chateau Saint Michel partnership, and so uh, he really liked Jay's Pinot style, and so he just he said, "Hey, let's build a winery, let's uh, grow the brand, and you know, do a bigger collaboration." And so, while uh, Lozen was my first, the, the import side, Lozen Brothers USA uh, was my first own client while at the accounting firm. Uh, I was heavily involved in the, when they decided to enter into this partnership, I was involved in all the financial planning and the financial model, um, which we didn't follow for much of the first seven to eight years. Um, but so I was heavily involved in that and, you know, Lozen Brothers was growing. There were still only basically two or three brands that we were importing. Um, the Dr. Lozen brand and then Ernie's other brand, Villa Wolf. And then we were just bringing in another German producer, uh, Robert Weil, and 
they had these grandiose ideas of growing the import business. And then you had Jay Christopher partnership coming on. And I just remember being in a meeting, uh, going over some financial planning and and one of the partners at the firm said, yeah, you guys are going to need a financial person on staff. And like kind of at that point, I was getting burnt out with public accounting. Um, public accounting is kind of a burn and churn, churn and burn, whichever. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, light kind of went off in my head and I called up uh, our, our VP uh, of the import business, Kirk Willie, and just said, hey, I got someone for you. And volunteered and he was like, are you sure you want to leave public accounting? And I was like, are you kidding me? Um, I couldn't have gotten out faster and it was nothing against the firm by any means. It was just, I couldn't keep up with those hours, which is ironic because I work far more now. Um, but yeah, so I came out uh, in early 20, I guess end of 2010 and uh, you know, the partnership with Jay and Ernie became official at the start of 2010. So um, I got to help negotiate the whole, you know, buy-in, which was awkward since they technically had been a partnership for almost a year. And we kind of started the partnership without having everything dialed in. That's kind of kind of been the way. Ernie likes to say the plan is there is no plan. So, um, yeah, we, we uh, got rolling with that. I still was more focused more on the import business, um, and I just would be here for, you know, the financial aspects, the financials, uh, compliance, bank reporting, negotiating loans. Uh, but at that time, Jay was still mostly doing his thing mm -hmm. here and, and running things while we tried to build this facility up and and grow the brand so we talk about the the import business first since that was kind of where you where you got started uh, you mentioned it started fairly small tell me how when you got involved what your what your kind of initial role was and then how it has grown since you've been a part of it um, so when I started the office you know we had three salespeople Kirk who's a marketing and uh, guru, he had his own, uh, actually worked with Peter Lehm, they did this Riesling report together way back in the day and that's how we actually met Ernie. But uh, I was mostly just a one-man office. I mean, everything that the company needed fell onto me other than, you know, general basic management of the sales team and, and marketing. That all fell on Kirk, but otherwise, schlepping wine you know, processing orders, processing billbacks, every bill, dealing with all HR stuff. I mean, everything was literally me, um, which was great because it was small enough that I could still manage, but I got to see every aspect of the business. And um, it helped, you know, if I were ever to go off on my own, not that I have plans to, but just the foundation, all these, you get an insight into every piece of the business, which I thought was was fun, uh, which is was more for me um, uh, kind of an entertaining thing to do than, you know, when you're at the, the accounting firm, you're just doing this one specific function or a couple of specific functions where to basically feel like you are the company is a really cool feeling. Um, you, I met a lot of people you know, I'm dealing with distributors and their salespeople and dealing with the, the other brands that we're considering importing. You know, you just, you're kind of this uh, just focal point mm -hmm. that, of communication. So it's afforded me a lot, of, a lot of cool relationships and, you know, opportunities to travel and those sorts of things. So from that start, what, what does the, that, the import side of the business look like today? Yeah, so we're, gosh, like I said, we, we were Dr. Lozen and Villa Wolf, and now um, we just, for a while, we're picking up more German producers, um, Robert Weil, Maxman Grunhaus, Fritz Hogg, um, Wittmann. You know, these, these guys are all uh, iconic 
uh, brands in Germany. Like they, the winemakers there have all won, uh, been named like the winemaker of the year, winery of the year. Um, and so we call it the friends of Ernie portfolio. And these are all his friends that they see Ernie's success and you know, they, they may have, they were all already being imported into the US and they like, you know, it's this just group of friends that we all work together, we, we play well together. Um, and so that's been fun, but you know, we've picked up uh, Gantenbein, which is, you know, a very high-end Swiss Pinot producer, beautiful estate, um, small and expensive, but the wines are beautiful and, and he's very iconic. Uh, for a, a Swiss producer. Um, we've picked up Maison Roche de Belen, Domaine de Belen uh, in, in Bone, which is uh, the owner winemaker is Nicolas Potel. And you know, he had this other label that's still out there with his name that he's no longer associated with. His father was an icon, uh, you know, Claude de Lepouse d'Or. Uh, and we've imported Jim Berry from Australia. Um, and these are all like, very highly respected producers in their regions. And so that's been a fun thing to represent these iconic brands, um, whether big or small. It's just fun. I mean, if you're gonna have a, have a product that you're putting out there, why not work with some of the best, you know? Um, yeah, so we picked up all these brands. We've gone from two, two brands when I started to, I don't, I need my business card because it lists them all out, but there's, you know, 12, 14 brands that we now import. And, you know, we're, we're in a position that a few times we've been able to say we're, we're not quite ready to take you on because we have to focus on these brands, but they've, they've been some iconic brands too, and it feels good to be wanted. How has the the demand for these wines? You mentioned these are all well-known producers. Uh, does the, is there a challenge to 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 find places for these wines in the United States once you import them, or is it fairly easy at that point? Well, Riesling is not the the easiest sell, uh, as I'm sure you're well aware. The whole perception is that it's sweet, which is completely. I mean, there are sweet or fruity style. Rieslings, but there are a lot of dry wines. And in fact, that's one of the big thing Ernie Lozen is focusing on now is he's, he's developing, you know, his cellar with a lot of dry, high-end uh, Rieslings. I mean, he has some entry levels too that are, are very nice, but, uh, but you can go to a tasting and try and offer Riesling to someone and they're like, I don't like it, it's sweet. And I'm like, but you grew up drinking Coca-Cola and you have no problem drinking that. So I don't think people know what sweet is, or it, there's just some weird conflict there. But, but um, yeah, I mean, the, the wines are easy to sell to wine, winos, like the Psalms and whatnot. They all really appreciate Riesling, whether it's sweet or fruity or, or dry or somewhere in between. And we often hear from these people that, yeah, these are my favorite wines but can't get the consumer to try it because of preconceived notions or whatnot. So, um, you know, Ernie, Ernie's fighting the fight. He's, uh, you know, goes around the world pushing Riesling and we realize it's kind of one of those things you have to convert one drinker at a time. But uh, we've obviously had some success. I mean, Ernie has his big Dr. L brand that, you know, is, feels like it's everywhere. I feel like I can go in any, any state and find it pretty easily. Um, and for a lot of our distributors, it's one of the biggest wines they sell, if not the biggest. Um, the other producers, the, their production is more, much smaller scale too. So it's, we sell through the wines, but we don't necessarily get a lot of them. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's definitely, uh, it is a challenge to sell Riesling. Um, you know, some of these other varietals we do, like especially with Ernie's Villa Wolf Estate, it's a value-driven brand where the, the wines far exceed their, their price point. So those are easy sales. But there's so much competition right now, nothing, is, nothing feels easy. 
And for you personally, as as the as that side of the import side has grown, what is your role in kind of day to day, month to month, year to year with with the importing? What 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 what's your role as as far as that part goes? Oh man, I you know I'm still kind of the jack of all trades, where my my week this week could look so very different from next to next week, you know. So um, that's kind of a hard question to answer at, at this point. You know, I can at least get out of the day-to-day -day stuff of processing orders and those kinds of things. But um, the most of the the day-to-day -day stuff, if, if I'm into a, a daily role, the biggest thing there is just inventory management, especially right now with everything going on. The the uh, EU tariffs were not friendly to us; cost us a lot of money. Um, the obviously the pandemic has not been helpful in the. So managing inventory is, is probably the one daily task that I do that's in a very, you know, operational piece of the business. Um, I mean, I can't tell you how many delays. In, in 10 and a half years, when we book a container to ship from Europe or wherever, before it even loads, at the time they book it, they give you an ETA, and maybe twice has a container not fallen, you know, within two days, give or take, of the ETA they gave us. Now, every container is anywhere from two to 10 weeks late this year alone. And you know that's, that's spanning 350 containers in my 10 and a half years, you know, 1,300 cases a container. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's you know, those, that piece has been uh, a big part of the, the daily things that I do that, that uh, I'm, I'm in, involved in daily, but otherwise tomorrow I'll be dealing with insurance or I'll be dealing with you know, what we're doing in the cellar here. Between the two roles, I, I, it's more just keeping the holes plugged. That's how I feel. So. So let's talk about this this space. Uh, you mentioned kind of you kind of here from the ground up. So tell me about how it's come about, and and again with with this part of the business, kind of how you, how you see your role uh, for uh, for Jay Christopher. So my role, well, first the this property. So we bought this property, or Ernie bought this property in two thousand nine, and we we built this winery in three phases. So in twenty ten. Um, we built for efficiency and sustainability purposes. There are five barrel caves down below that were put into the hillside, and there's a little room off that, and that was phase one in 2010. And then the following year, we did phase two, which is there's a red facility that right through here, and then there's the white facility, and then crush pad upper and lower, and we did that in 2011. And that was cool. There are these concrete uh, tilt-up walls where they lay the concrete down on a concrete pad outside and they've got the the forms and all that and they just come in with a uh, crane tilt everything up so it's almost like instant winery right <laughs> and uh, fascinating to watch it was like we were Kirk and I came out, we were like 15 minutes late when they were tipping the walls up and it's like they'd already had half the walls tipped up and I'm like, happens that quickly. Um, and then in the, ta the tasting room we, we built in 2017 um, and it's, it's not the concrete tilt up obviously, but uh, yeah, so that's, that's how this space came about. Um, and then my role, my role here I don't know, it's really trying not to mess things up. Um, obviously, we've had a few transitions, um, but you know, Kelly in our tasting room, he's been here, he knows what he's doing. Um, the, uh, the, the, between the, the buyout of Jay, um, which was a, you know, transition over a couple of years and then we had a, briefly had another winemaker that had been under uh, Jay and then um, now bringing back Tim Malone who was a good friend and and I'd kind of been like when are you coming back you know for a couple of years 
and he wasn't ready to do it. And so, you know, now that he's here, I mean, he went off, did his own thing, and which was great because, you know, he wasn't producing 10,000 cases of wine, but he was producing, you know, 2,500 cases, and he understood all the compliance and. He was a one-man show for his own operation, his own label. So to bring someone in that has that understanding and skill set, I try and stay out of what he's doing other than, you know, we go and we taste through wines and conceptualize stuff. But he's running the show down there and he does a great job. And so I'm, I'm really here to, to share Ernie's vision and make sure people are following it. Um, I think that's... That's the biggest thing. These guys otherwise don't need me, other than you know, as a reminder and to sign the checks. Um, I don't want to. I try not to overthink it, but uh, yeah. I mean, every now and then I pop in and probably agitate. Agitate. Why is he here? So uh, it's it's easier if I just kind of hide out in my my office and and. Uh, Make sure the the things don't go to tatters, but they otherwise it's a it's a pretty well oiled machine. I think we're more organized than we've ever been. We've got some systems in place that we've never done, and you know finally, you know after the financial model that I helped create while at Irvin, that we didn't follow, we finally ten years now are implementing that, and everyone understands what it looks like, and so we're on the path we should be on. Delay gratification. Yeah, it's, you know, I, since I started working on this project back, you know, in 08, um, my, my first daughter was born in, in 2008, so I kind of, it's like, this is my other daughter. So, yeah, it's, it's taken a while to get there, but, you know, I will say, you know, we've already sold more wine this year um, through the end of May than we did all of last year. And, you know, we took a hit during the pandemic with with Oregon wine in general, as well as our winery. But man, uh, I mean, we didn't take a hard hit last year. Uh, it's just speaking to the success of what we're doing this year. It's when you actually have a plan and a focus, you can really, really grow. You talked about sort of being in charge of sort of implementing uh, Ernie's vision. Tell me, how would you describe that vision? What What is the vision for this place? It's, it's ironic that that I said that too, because he came in, just came through town last week. He hadn't been through in a year and a half, and we had a week of meetings with him, and he kind of he kind of took a little bit of a left turn with some of the stuff we we're doing. But no, I mean, we have kind of a basic production tier we want to follow. And the, I talked earlier about this, a passion auto label, like he wants to grow this as a much bigger brand and that had never really been, we'd always, it was supposed to be 500 cases and it never really got there until the last few years. But, um, you know, now all of a sudden he wants it to be a 3000 case brand. And so we're kind of readjusting as we're working through like the 19 Pinots right now, we're kind of readjusting some blends so that we can kind of reconcile and start down this path of this vision he has for this Apassionato label. And, and the, the biggest thing about the Apassionato label, for example, is these are wines that were, were going to lay down for 10 years before they're even released. So like in 2020, or 2022, excuse me, um, we'll be releasing the 2012 Apassionato. And it's only 100 cases, but and then the following, there's like 200 cases. But we're releasing these wines when they're 10 years old, which nobody out here intentionally creates a brand to lay the wines down for 10 years before release, uh, which I think, as an accountant, it's an accountant's nightmare. <laughs> Sell the wine. Um, but it's also very cool. I mean, I think it's great that, you know, we're fortunate that Ernie is patient and he's curious and, and can afford um, to do something like that. And, you know, for 100 cases, it's not much, but when he tells me he wants to do it with, you know, 3,000 cases a year, I'm, I'm kind of shaking my head a little bit. Um, but no, I mean, I'm, I'm really excited 
uh, I'm, and I love Ernie's passion, and he does this in Germany with some of his wines where he's doing Rieslings that um, he leaves in, in big fooder casks, you know, for three years, and then he puts them in bottle, and they sit for three years, and then he releases them, you know. I think the, the patience and the, the willing to wait and explore is, is really cool. Um, and so I'm excited we do that here. I mean, we've always traditionally uh, at J. Christopher, our wines are all pretty well made the same, you know, 20 months in, in barrel, you know, we barrel over um, and a few months in bottle before releasing. So we're always kind of one of the wineries that is last to release the, the current vintage. Um, and so, you know, these are these, Ernie's not out there pushing the wine. He wants the, he wants to be patient. He wants the wines to present well, rather than just rushing to make, mm -hmm. you know, a dollar. So that's the thing I, I remind people more than anything is patience. Yeah, I know you mentioned sort of uh, industry organizations earlier. I know you were involved with IPNC for a while. I'm, I'm curious how that came to be and what, what your role was with that. Um, so, gosh, well, Kirk, our VP, he's, he's been working IPNC in the wine truck for at least two decades. And so it's pretty easy for him, you know, there's various inventory sorts we do during the year out at the Abbey. And it was pretty easy for him to be like, hey, you're coming with me. And so, you know, we're sorting wine. And then part of it is that that whole team that does that, the wine room, wine truck, we're pretty much the same group that works this every year. We might have a new face or two at times. But it's like this band of brothers. And so, um, you know, Amy Wesselman, the executive director, and, and her husband Dave, they became really good friends through that. And, um, you know, so I was always eager to help when I could with accounting stuff. And so, um, yeah, one day Amy just nominated me for the board since I was already volunteering so much, and which was great. I'm, I'm very passionate about it, IPNC, I love it. Um, and then I, somehow ended up on the executive board. Um, I don't know how that happened. Um, we missed the meeting. I think so, actually. <laughs> but it, which was cool. I mean, it is an honor to, to serve. And so I'm currently the, the president of IPNC. Um, this is, given the pandemic, I will have been president for three full years before I'm off, which is cool because no one's been president for more than one term or, or a year. So take that, Donald Trump. No, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, to be on the board. It's it, Like I said, it's an honor. And, and uh, I'm looking forward to having a, another in-person event. It's, it's been rather frustrating navigating how do we fundraise and do events to keep the, the IPNC brand relevant and known um, during a pandemic. And everybody has switched to doing such methods and, and whatnot. So there's a lot of competition. It's, it's really challenging. And we are a non, non-profit. So uh, it's not like we're, we're flush in cash to begin with. So it's, it's been a challenge, but to be honest, to go through all this and to be, be so involved in knowing that we're gonna come out on the other side feels good to have been part of this. Um, mm -hmm. rather than a, a bystander, mm -hmm. so. So tell me how the 2020 IPNC went and, and with this one upcoming next month, what you're sort of hoping for this year as a, as a stepping stone. Yeah, so 2020, we, we didn't really do anything other than we called it the salmon take and that was at, held out at Stoller. Um, I considered it a success, it was, you know, at that point it was kind of a last minute scramble. Um, I don't, I mean, the last year was a blur, but I, I don't think anyone knew what it would look like, what we could do. Um, and so, but I, if nothing else, the, the volunteers that are there year in, year out, the Mater D's that come to serve, 
the wine truck, some of the other participants from wineries, like the fact that so many people showed up, it was nice to see how many people really were passionate about it. I don't, I, um, from that perspective, it kind of gave us hope that IPNC could survive through something catastrophic. Uh, this year, we'll see, it's, you know, it's all a virtual thing on a Saturday. Um, you know, it looks like the, the, the amount of tickets we set aside were about to sell out, uh, which is great. Um, and we had a lot of, a lot of wineries who have really stepped, to, uh, stepped up to the plate and made donations via wine, money, and other you know, in-kind donations. So the funds are going to be there to carry us through to an in-person event in 2020, um, which we're all relieved, but we're all really excited. And, and we're looking forward to the 2020 IPNC. I think it's, it's going to be one of those things where I think there's a little pressure to make it extra special because it's like we missed two years, it's three years between events and everyone's coming together and it's like, it's to me it's going to be so much more than just about the wine, it's a celebration of coming together again, which uh, IPNC was always kind of that way, but it, I feel like in 2020 it's really going to be that and you know, there's a lot of the, the people, not just the volunteers, but the a lot of the customers are the same mm -hmm. year in, year out and it's going to be great to see, mm -hmm. you know, those people and have them back and you know what it means for McMinnville it's it's a big draw I know a lot of people who come to McMinnville during IPNC they don't even attend IPNC but there's just so much else going on uh, around it that people come and enjoy it so um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it, especially for someone who lives in downtown McMinnville that vibe is so cool yeah 2022 something, something to look forward to um, so I'm curious, um, we're talking about, this is talking about 2020 anyway, let's talk about 2020 a little bit more. Um, tell me about COVID uh, sort of initial reaction uh, last spring uh, to, for you and for, for your work here uh, and how you sort of, how Jay Christopher and, and, and the Lucent Imports sort of made it through the year. So Lowe's and Imports, that's, that's an easier one. That was, you know, we, um, Obviously, on-prem died in a minute. It just dropped off a cliff. Um, you know, our distributors, especially with the wines that were value-driven, like Doctorell, and it's a known commodity, like Villa Wolf, um, those wines, our distributors did such a great job pivoting and pushing through off-prem. And, you know, the people were just buying what they recognized and value, value wines. And so... That was great. We actually finished, as far as case volume, uh, Lowe's in, or 2020 was our best year for the import side of the business. Um, it wasn't our best year revenue because, you know, we took a hit to, to hold pricing with uh, the EU tariffs, 25% tax on everything we brought from, from Europe. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a very successful year and what was really cool was to see we can be successful without some of the expenses that we thought were necessary. The amount of travel, I mean, my last work trip was end of February, uh, early March last year, and then I didn't travel again for the rest of the year, at least not for business. And the amount of money we were able to, to save and, and the creative ways, you know, that you use social media um, and other webinars and platforms um, was, was really cool. It's actually made my life easier because every business trip sounds great until you pack up your stuff and you're driving to the airport. I'm like, I don't want to travel. Um, so that was a challenge. I mean, but that that also is the I, the lows and import side for me is more of a virtual thing as I see it. Like, I can do that job from anywhere. Mm -hmm. Here, the Jay Christopher stuff. It's like I've got my my TR employees and of course the tasting room has to close for a limited, you know, some set of time. And from day one, I was always ultra conservative and cautious about what we did here. I wasn't going to do anything that made them uncomfortable or that they didn't want to do. Um, and they were, 
multiple times expressed gratitude for, for that approach. Um, it's just not worth, I mean, nobody knew what, what COVID really looked like, so I wasn't gonna put someone else at risk, mm -hmm. especially if I wasn't gonna be doing it. So um, closing the doors was tough, but they were also nimble. Like we were better about putting online offers. We were selling Lowe's and wines or wines from the Lowe's and portfolio. Um, these guys, I mean, the community, the, the, the community, the, the customers that, that follow Jay Christopher and, and appreciate the brand, they also came out like and stepped up and said, I'm gonna order and we're gonna drive through and you just load it in our, your, our trunk. Or these guys were, were running and um, uh, selling wine, uh, delivering wine, you know, from Portland to Beaverton. And so I think everyone was just grateful that one, we all had jobs and two, that we were all in it together. Uh, it was, I felt like it was a cool kind of team mm -hmm. experience. Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm ready for things to be completely reopened, but um, you know, the going through the bad times gets you, you know, you learn a lot and uh, makes you more appreciative of the good times. Well, before we talk about good times, I have to ask about harvest of 2020, the other, the other issue from last year. So tell me about the, the smoke and fires and, the, and how they impacted your work here. Uh, no comment. Um, <laughs> no, you know, it, it's, it's, it was uh, really sad. Um, our, our vineyard here, our estate vineyard, had been struggling for years due to just some mismanagement in the vineyard. And so Ernie sends over um, uh, Lucas, our vineyard manager from, from Germany. And he's really kind of brought the vineyard back to life. He came at the end of 2018. And I mean, this guy is a machine. He's, uh, he, he pruned our entire vineyard in 2019 at the start by himself. There's 21 acres, he did all himself. And uh, so my, my point is, the vineyard was finally where we wanted last year. It was gonna be our biggest harvest yet. The fruit was the best we've seen from the estate, super balanced. Um, and then the wildfires hit and of course, we're right under this Bald Peak Shehalem mountain fire. So we had, you know, police here telling us you have to leave. Um, they blocked off hillside. So we weren't allowed, I think it was four or five days we weren't allowed up here. And uh, which is, you hear all the panic in the valley about smoke taint, but we're direct in the direct zone. And so the, yeah, we, uh, we knew it was bad, but you know, through the connections with Chateau St. Michel, while everyone's sending samples off to um, uh, labs and they're backed up, mm -hmm. we were able to get a couple samples into Chateau St. Michel's lab and um, basically is, is uh, that helped expedite the uh, getting results, but I was here at 8 a.m. We are picking uh, Pinot. We'd already picked some of the whites, but we were picking Pinots, and the, um, the numbers came back from Chateau Saint-Michel on the estate that were so high that, I mean, uh, Bob Bertow, the former head winemaker there was like, don't pick. And so I walked out and told our vineyard manager to, to cancel the pick of the Pinot. So, and it, it's sad, I, I mean, you'd go out there and you taste the, the fruit on the vine and you don't notice anything, but it's, it's that's not how smoke taint works, you know? So it was, it, that was heartbreaking. I mean, we, um, we lease and farm Medici Vineyard down the road here, three miles. And those uh, smoke tape numbers were 
you know, three times less what they were here. I mean, vicinity counts, but we're a direct hit where the smoke is just billowing down. Um, and even a, a site from the Dundee Hills, it was a third as well. So we're, we're moving forward with making some 2020s and we're actually hopeful about some of them. Our production obviously is gonna be much smaller, um, especially when not picking the estate. I mean, that's 18, 19 acres of Pinot that we picked maybe 15, 20% of. Um, so it's disappointing, but we're, we're, like I said, we're still hopeful. There are some really nice barrels. Um, you know, we did, Ernie came through, tasted them. He actually, he, he really likes the wines. Now, of course, smoke tank can present itself later. But, you know, we tasted the wines with, with Bob Rateau when he made appearance through here uh, recently. And he was actually impressed with where some of the wines sit. So I don't think everything's lost. Um, but it's definitely sad. You know, I have friends down the valley that they're not making any red wine this year. Um, and some even just let their entire estate left it alone, didn't pick, uh, which is, just shows you how everyone's reaction is to it. Um, I do think maybe that people will have a little bit of regret for not, regret for not picking um, and trying at least something. For us, it was a science experience, at least with our estate. Mm -hmm. Even though the estate numbers, the, the smoke tank numbers were so high, we figured, like, why not? This is an opportunity to learn. Mm -hmm. If you don't, you don't put it, go forth and, and make an effort to learn what are you gonna do in the future if this keeps happening, which seems like a distinct possibility. Plus, who doesn't like to experiment and learn? And that's half of the fun in this industry. So you've had a, a, an interesting perspective on the growth of the industry from, from your work with some of the, we mentioned some of the transactions, some of the mergers you've been a part of. What are the, the biggest changes you've seen in, in Oregon wine since, since you've been in it? What, what does it look like now versus what it looked like when you started? And, and what do you see for the future? It's interesting. You know, obviously working for a, for a foreigner, he wasn't the first, um, but there is definitely, you do see this influx of um, foreign investment. It seems like mostly from France. Uh, the recent, I mean, now you've got Bollinger from Champagne here, which I think is cool. Um, I don't know, I think, you know, it's so expensive. It, France, for example, is so expensive to make wine that it's cool. They're like, hey, let's go try and make similar wines or the same wines, but in a, in a different climate and in an affordable climate for them. Um, so I still, I still expect a lot of outside interest. I think people realize we got something cool going on here. Um, you know, a lot of wineries from California, obviously, are, are investing here. I just think it speaks volumes to, you know, what we've built here and what the potential still is. Um, and uh, I'm excited to see that continued trend. And, and what's cool is, you know, for the most part, there still really is this community. Um, like any industry, there's always gonna be your, your outliers, but it is, I, I think even this year, the pandemic too has made it real for people where um, they are willing to be a little bit more collaborative again too. And so I'm hoping that spirit continues um, I'm curious to see, I don't know, not necessarily just because climate change, but just because there are people experimenting. I'm kind of curious to see what, what potential additional varietals we might, might start to see more of here in the valley. Um, I'm, I don't expect a big change, at least not in the short term, but I am curious uh, to see what happens there. Um, yeah. Uh, it, the the big thing for me though is the the amount of brands and labels you see now. I mean, I I don't remember what my client list looked like when I was at Irvin and Company, but I can tell you there are a lot more licensed wineries now. I mean, the fact that I think we have 
we're number two as far as in the country for actual um, brands or labels, even at just barely ahead of Washington. Uh, I mean, I, I can't I can't believe how much that's grown. I am kind of curious though too. The other side is you know so much of what we've been doing in Oregon, it's site specific. Like you're like we are here, we're we're a winery and a vineyard, mm -hmm. and now you're starting to see, you know, like. Portland Wine Company and Division Winemaking, and, and those guys are more in an urban setting, and some of them may own vineyards, some of them are just buying fruit, which is all all great. Um, there's room for everybody, I think. But I'm just kind of curious if we're gonna see more of that trend, or um, if it's gonna be more where, like I said, site-specific, uh, site where you're a winery and a vineyard. You talked about the, the kind of the possible, probable recurrence of, of some sort of fire season again. You talked about climate change. I'm curious, as you look ahead for the industry or, or even for, for Jay Christopher specifically, are, what, are the, what, what concerns you in the future? Are there, are there things you're worried about that you're looking ahead to and, and, and sort of trying to get out in front of? Yeah, we, we bought these giant fans that were stationing around the, the vineyard perimeter. Uh, come, come Harvard, no. Uh, <laughs> No, we, I mean, that was the thing why we, we are testing our own wine and exploring what we're doing. It's, you know, if this does become a bigger issue, what are we going to do in the future? Um, how do we keep the, the wheels in motion and, and be financially, financially viable? You know, if, if we can't lose our crop every year. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, we've, invested a fair amount of money exploring you know ways to mitigate smoke taint and you know none of them are cheap but we have to figure out something and, and the hope is that enough people have to do this that they're like anything once the technology is and, and the, the treatments are understood you know maybe they become a bit fi more financially feasible um, it seems like a lot of people are are working on this topic as we speak. So uh, I'm not suggesting that we'll have a solution as quickly as uh, the, the COVID vaccination, but I know there's a lot of people concerned about it and working. And so we just kind of, Tim's a, Tim's a research guy too. He loves to look into this stuff. So we're reading up on everything. I mean, this, this group from, from uh, Northern California wine country, Maverick, they came up and were doing barrel trials and they, you know, you basically send some barrels to them. They run their, their trials and do some treatment and send the wine back to you and you see what you think. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of, a lot of those kind of opportunities that we're just, we're exploring until we figure out what the solution is long-term. But um, yeah, the question I have though is, even, even if these wildfires, like I said, <clears throat> Bob Berteau mentioned that that uh, some of the trials they did at Chateau Saint Michel, where people say oh, smoke taint might present itself later in the bottle, he was telling us with some of the stuff they've done, it it doesn't present itself. So there's always a question: are are we um, making a bigger deal out of something that might not be a big deal? And I I'm not here for the argument. I'm just. I'm here to listen to, you know, what the reality is and and, and gain understanding. I, it's not that I don't think it will be a problem. It's just I'd like to start the conversation. So just look ahead for for your own future. What 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 are you looking forward to? Will you have anything on the horizon you're excited about? And, and what does the future look like here? Well, as far as the import business, I mean. We're humming along, like I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised with how well that's doing. Um, the amount of growth we're seeing this year and experiencing has been great. Um, the suspension of the EU tariffs has been rather friendly. Um, it makes the business that much more uh, financially viable, helps with cash flow. Um, and. We're not in the midst of doing a whole lot with new brands at the moment, but 
I suspect we're going to keep growing. Um, and, you know, not being tied to one office space kind of opens up our doors to <clears throat> potentially add more, more talent, whether it's sales or office. Um, so there's, there's some good opportunity and, and uh, epiphanies that's kind of come out of the whole pandemic. Mm -hmm. I, uh, as far as Jay Christopher, gosh, <clears throat> Ernie is such a uh, visionary. He's got so many great ideas that he could have a whole new idea tomorrow and it could change the course of the entity. But um, it wouldn't be so much changing course as it would be an extension or mm -hmm. something new, you know. Um, there's, there's a couple of projects that we're excited about that we're just starting to talk about that um, we're not really ready to talk about publicly, but there's some really cool um, things on the horizon and, and opportunities that we're pursuing that I, I'm pretty excited about, to be totally honest. Um, I, don't, I don't typically think so much about my future. I'm more of a day-to-day -day type of person. Um, but some of these ideas that in conversations we've been having with Ernie are things that make me excited. And it, it is one of those things where I am now, OK, like I want to be a part of this. I want to be around for this. Mm -hmm. So I'm just planning to be here, planning to just show up, do my thing, be a part of it, enjoy it. So life's too short. What about outside of wine? Anything else you're looking ahead to in your own life? Uh, gosh, well, um, we bought a, bought a house in Hawaii, uh, probably not the best move during a pandemic. Um, it's up on, on the Hilo side of the Big Island, right up by the volcano. We just closed, you know, two months ago. So heading back there in a week and I'm looking forward to just kind of splitting my time as, as I can between, uh, Oregon wine country and, and Hawaii. Those are two big things, two loves for me that, that uh, I really enjoy, you know, and sharing that with my, my family, my wife and my kids. And, you know, other than that, I just, I'm desperate to go get to a, like a real baseball game. Um, I, yeah, I'm trying to squeeze that in the summer. I don't quite know how it fits, but even if I have to just drive down to San Francisco, grab a game and then come right back, um, and I, just the reality of sitting at a bar, I just want to sit at a bar, like, not just at the restaurant, I want to sit at the bar and actually talk to the bartender. I mean, McMinnville, Third Street, like, yeah, there's a couple of spots there that, uh, you know, once a week, we just pop in for a drink, even if it's just one quick happy hour drink or, or at the end of the day, it's nice to just sit there and be able to have the relationship with the bartender. I mean, there's a few in McMinnville that, mm -hmm. that uh, I'd love to see their faces. So it's a little, little, little sad to, I didn't think I would miss it and I didn't for a while, but now I'm ready to sit at the counter and actually be able to interact mm -hmm. rather than having your server or waiters or bartenders kind of look at you like you might be giving them the plague. It's, it's the, the littlest things, right? Yeah, no, it, it really is. I mean, little little thistle in McMinnville, Patrick, you know, I, he'd see me outside and he'd already have my cocktail made before I even walked in because he knew what I was going to order. So, <laughs> and if I wasn't going to order that, I would have, I'd drink it anyway since he made it, but uh, it's all good. <laughs> So I know you took kind of an interesting path into the industry. If, if someone were to ask you for advice or, or words of wisdom on getting into the Oregon wine industry, what would you tell them? Um, I mean, for myself, I, I feel like I came into it an easier way than a lot of people. Um, I think, you know, like any industry, but I feel like in this industry, like this is not an industry where you're going to make a ton of money without working really hard to, to progress to where you want to be. So, you know, you have to be prepared to put in your dues. You have to 
you might have to do some maybe even volunteer work to try and get your foot in the door and people want to see your work ethic and know what you want to be I think not just for this industry but for any like know what you want to be and then put your steps in motion I sometimes I see people who want to be in production and they're just spending their time doing tasting room work and that is a, a way you can get in the, the foot in the door sometimes but I've seen it several times where people just kind of flounder in the tasting room really rather than force their way into the cellar work that they maybe want to do or whatnot. So I'd say, yeah, identify what you want to do and then come up with a, a path that you want to follow to get there. Uh, harvest, working harvest, is always the seemingly the easiest way to really get your foot in the door one way or another because one, you, you build relationships. Those are grueling times, uh, a lot of work, but that's where you can really make it known, like one, your intentions, your work ethic. Um, so, you know, yeah, harvest is, harvest is probably the one thing I would say. I mean, I, friends in the restaurant industry who want to get into wine, especially in the pandemic, this is the perfect year to go work harvest. It's like the restaurants the restaurants may, you know, may only be partially staffed or may not need a full staff. Um, although I know that they're struggling to hire people right now too. So, sorry, restaurants. I didn't mean to tell people to abandon ship. I don't know. Sometimes. All right. That's all the questions that we have cool. for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered? Um, I'm sure I'll think of something later. I'll be like, oh man. So maybe you can just Photoshop my head and back in and add some voiceover or something. But no, it's, yeah, I think that covered a lot. Good. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, I no, appreciate it. Inviting us here for the hospitality and uh, sharing your story with us. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Cool. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.